Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Wednesday, August the 16th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I am Hugh Linehan, and with me in studio today, Mary Minahan and Fiat Kelly from our political staff. Fiat, you've come hot foot from the British Embassy, uh, all eyes in Ireland, trained on uh, the British government and the British Embassy at the moment. The document just released in relation to Brexit. Yeah, I have the document here in my hand on Northern Ireland and Ireland, the position paper that the British government has released as part of its uh, preparations for the next round of negotiations with the EU on Brexit. Fortunately, I haven't had a time to read through it in much detail. It's seems a bit longer than yesterday's one. It's about 27 pages long. Uh, the British officials say that this, the fact that it's the second paper out there is a kind of an indication of how seriously you're taking the issue of Ireland. But again, we know the broad outlines of it, that they, they don't want a border. Um, and they explain that their position with the border is inextricably linked to their position on customs. And we saw the customs paper yesterday, which outlined a couple of options that the British see as the future shape of the relationship with the EU. One is, as they're calling it, a new partnership approach, which will essentially see the UK manage EU imports and vice versa. But there would be some sort of an honour system whereby if there's a kind of differential in tariffs, there'd be a refund from UK and a refund to the EU. The other, what you would think is the less likely option, is an arrangement which would necessitate a border of some description. Um, The fact that the key stumbling block is that the UK wants the freedom to negotiate I suppose, uninhibited its own free trade agreements post-March 2019, which is when Brexit kicks in. The problem is that they're not able to do that if they are, are still in the customs union, which they're saying they're going to leave effectively, but in all but name they'll be associated with it. So there's quite a lot to un- un- unpack within that. Maybe first of all, this question of an interim period in which effectively the United Kingdom would remain within the customs union, but would, if the British had their way, have the right to negotiate new trade treaties, presumably which would come into place after that, I- after that interim period uh, yeah, case came to an seem, end? They seem to suggest that like, they're saying we, w- we will leave the customs union, but they're just leaving it in name only effectively everything else would apply in that transition period which is probably going to apply um, between 2019 and at the latest 2022 the next UK general election um, the EU has a call to make on whether it wants the British to be allowed to do that they first of all have to agree to a transitional phase sure um, but the freedom to the UK wants to be, become a third country which gives the freedom to strike its own free trade deals effectively Now, and is that likely to be an issue for, for the EU negotiators? Yes, because it's giving the British the best of both worlds, giving the benefits of the customs union and the ability to strike free trade deals, or to negotiate at the very least. I think the British even accept themselves they will not be able to put pen to paper on these free trade deals until they've cut all ties, but to bring in the preparatory work for them. So I think it is going to be difficult. I think that's probably a concession the British would like the EU to give them. Okay, just I mean, to take the British point of view for, for a moment on this, Mary, it, it doesn't seem entirely unreasonable to me that if a, an interim period in advance of, of Britain more, more formally leaving the system is in place, that it's not entirely unreasonable to allow the British government to try and put in place whatever trade mechanisms are going to exist when that interim period comes to an end. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's pretty clear what the British are doing. They're trying to 
uh, say that it's this nasty EU that is imposing this hard border arrangement uh, Whereas, obviously, the Irish government would have a completely different perspective on that. And I think the British were a little bit cheeky yesterday when they put out their customs paper first because, uh, you know, if you look at the Irish government statement, always go to the last line and you'll see the sort of the most important point. And in that, they refer to the fact that, you know, under these very carefully structured negotiations that are going to take place uh, in Brussels that customs can't be got to until we have these other phase one, so-called phase one issues sorted Including out. Including Ireland. Yes. Uh, but I suppose what the British have asked for is a is a very big ask. As Vic says, it's an opening gambit. Uh, I don't think they expect to get what they ask for, but it's certainly uh, a huge, um, you know, requesting this new customs partnership with the EU. Uh, and uh, they say in their paper yesterday, this is, of course, unprecedented as an approach and could be challenging to implement. And we will look to explore the principles of this with business and the EU. So it's extremely vague. And there are phrases knocking about today, like trusted traders that would be OK to go back and forth across the border. I mean, I can see problems with that instance. That is, it's grand for people who are in place mm. already. But what about future traders, people who want to set up new businesses and so on? So, you know, it just seems, I suppose what it tells us is uh, your ally is your friend until his interests are threatened. And Britain is in that position now. And while there are friends and neighbours and we'd like to see, see things work out well for them, I think it's in, it's in our interests ultimately to see things work out well. Yeah, so this is the tricky thing for Ireland, which sets it aside from the other European states, is that Ireland's interests, it goes without saying, are inextricably linked to Britain because of our history, because of our geography uh, and things like that. So, you know, if they do well, we do well. If they do badly, we do badly. But uh, I suppose we don't want to be uh, completely ridden over in this deal either. So, F- Sophia, if, if you were to take it then that this is, as Mary says, a, an opening gambit. Mm. Um, and I mean, I think I remember a couple of weeks ago, Leo Varadkar talking about the space within which negotiations mm. on these sorts of issues would take place. In mm. other words, really looking for people to put out their starting positions yeah. and then whatever negotiation takes place between mm. those. So presumably we can expect some response from uh, Michel Barnier and the yeah, EU side over the next. Over the next Dude, few weeks. This is all prepar- preparing for the next phase of negotiations, with, which are due to begin later this month. So the EU side had asked the British, OK, we need to see some firmer proposals from you on a variety of issues. And I think there are around 10 position papers that are due to come out. We've seen two. We'll probably see more on stuff like the single market, agriculture, etc., etc., etc. So we're getting to that phase where the EU is going to have to come back with counter offers. Well, let's say for the sake of argument, because I don't think it's outside the bounds of possibility that the EU comes back with some, maybe may phrased more fancily than this, but basically your option is you're in the customs union yep. or you're not in the customs union. We, you know, we, we you can be in the customs mm. union, but you have to accept all the restrictions mm. as well as the opportunities that come. With well, that. that puts the British in a position where they have to decide. I think the next key point. Actually, it's interesting that Mary said that the, the, the phrase in the paper yesterday was unprecedented. And the briefing I just came from, uh, the sources out in the um, British sources were saying, well, Michel Barnier has used this phrase unprecedented already. So we're dealing with an unprecedented situation. Everybody knows that. So they're kind of saying, well, you guys say it's unprecedented, so therefore we're going to say it. And we're going to well, that's tailor a package. Negotiating, negotiating yeah. wordplay, isn't the, it? Uh, yeah, it is. But I think the next key point is going to be the, the negotiations between David Davis and Michel Barnier at the end of the month. 
the October summit of European heads of state and government is due to decide whether sufficient progress has been made on the issues set out, like Ireland, like, you know, the bill, like citizens' rights, for them to progress to the next stage, which is the future trading relationship, which will deal with customs in the single market, etc., etc. So it's going to be a call for the heads of state and government in October about whether we get to that next phrase. And they could possibly tell the British no, thank you, what you're offering is not what you want, is not possible. And we could be into a situation where months of uh, quagmire again, and I think the next staging post people see is that if it goes into difficulty in October, the last chance is January for people to come back and go, OK, let's move on. Because we're on a, you know, we're the, on clock, a the, the clock is ticking here. Mary, uh, I was very struck by a sort of poll of polls thing I saw yesterday, which was of uh, a public opinion in the United Kingdom, on the one hand, and in France and Germany, on the other, on I think it was the eight or perhaps nine key issues which are subject of negotiation. There's huge variation between what people in the UK thought the most important issue for them was, was immigration and what people in the EU thought the most important issue were, were, things, were things like not giving away too much to the British. But where they were absolutely as one was on which was the least important issue and that was Ireland and the border. Yeah, I think we have to be realistic about where we stand on on this stage, you know, and that's very much to the side. We're not centre stage at all. Um, I just happened to be listening to uh, LBC this morning, actually, and there was some discussion there about how the fact that, you know, this uh, Irish border issue hadn't been made an issue of during the campaign and there wasn't enough shouting about it. And, you know, you're bashing your head off the wall. Uh, we we shouted and shouted, but they just didn't listen. And even if you look at... Uh, columnists like uh, Matthew Paris um, who obviously is a you know a high Tory but he, he, it doesn't seem to feature in his thinking at all whereas he you know he's he's very concerned about the direction his party's going the direction his country's going in but it, he doesn't seem to be it, it just doesn't factor I think it comes down to something as basic as it's not on our landmass therefore it's not our problem and what they're saying the British is saying obviously that the border between Northern Ireland uh, and the Republic is the UK's only land border and their solution to avoiding a return to a hard border is not to erect these kind of uh, old-fashioned customs posts but I, I just don't see how that gets around their issue with immigration because as you say that is the top of their agenda everywhere. I was asking so, someone last night about this um, someone in the Department of Exit in the European Union in London I said look what is, what is the position I heard James Brokenshire asked about it as well right this morning if someone comes into Ireland and EU Citizens, say someone from France or Germany, and then because of free movement, they can come into Ireland because we're both member states, but then they can go to the UK because the UK and Ireland are linked by a common travel area. They haven't yet got to that position about how they square that circle. The answer I was given is, oh, we will have an immigration uh, bill later this later this autumn and we'll deal with that issue. But what is that? Are they going to have checkpoints to check people's papers mm. or, you know, okay, they're not going to have customs yeah, posts I, I, or they say I, I they're not going to this, Because the, the common travel posts. area, as James Brokenshire pointed out mm. this morning, has existed since the, the, 19, 1920s. The, the 1920s. People have been able to come in using using their passports from France and Germany and plenty of other countries since then mm. um, and then they've been able to travel within the common travel area between the two countries the the issue about immigration it seems to me is not so much about travel it's about the right to work, to work isn't yeah, it so I mean it, it's not necessarily entirely yeah, and look, super the thing about it, people aren't going to be looking you know French people aren't going to be required to have working visas every time they hop over to London for a weekend once this thing no, a lot there. of this it, it, it's not being said because we're in a negotiation and we don't want a border and we don't want any restrictions on trade mm. and neither the British but Everything is doable. You can organise a system whereby visa checks can be implemented. You can organise a border. That is doable. But it's just not palatable. Yeah. That's the problem. Sure. Yeah. It is doable but sure. not palatable. And nobody's saying that. 
but it is it is practical and possible to erect some class of a border. Like we have our teacher going to inspect the US Canada border arrangements this weekend. He's not doing that for the good of his own health. The people know this may have to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I suspect that, uh, you know, at, at the quite high up in the Tory party, I suspect they, they're just very unfamiliar with what the border actually is right now. I mean, you saw the Finnish foreign minister come over and sort of stand in the border you know, kind of patting his pockets and looking around. Is, is this it? Is that all there is? Yes, that is all there is at the minute. There's nothing there. And actually, I could probably speak for uh, quite a number of people in the Republic too. They just have no reason to go north. They don't know what it's like. Well, I frequently drive through I know you do, on my way to Donegal, as do you probably yeah. go through the same, the, the same border crossing there. And, yeah, I, I'm, and I'm old enough to remember um, ha- having British soldiers with large guns peering in the driver's window every time you went yeah. through. And now you could be going, you it's completely, there's nothing nothing there at all. Yeah, it's just when you see the speed signs on the road yeah. or you know that you've crossed over. Yeah, yeah. there's no big jolt as It's you not go. even a question of the roads <laughs> getting better anyway. You know, no, not at all. Worse. But yeah, I'm old enough to remember it too and to remember, as Fake says, like, it can be done because it was there before, but it's hideously inconvenient for the people yeah. that are unfortunate enough to, to live around it. And The right thing is when the customs border was put up in the past, it was also put it up, not the British, because we wanted to be separate from the UK entity, so we put it up, whereas it's the vice versa this time. Well, I mean, do you think, I mean, taking on board, I think Mary's absolutely right when she talks about how litheringly idiotic and ignorant most of the British establishment is about this particular issue. Um, I'm sure that the European side is more sympathetic and given that the European side is quote unquote our side as well, so it should be. But what about the other part of that poll which shows that people in France and Germany don't see this as the most important issue either? How is that likely to impact on our ability to get whatever the hell it is we want? The the fear would be that we would be squeezed at the end of this process and used as a, a bargaining chip by British or the Europeans, like a government statement released in response to the paper on Northern Ireland Ireland said that the peace process must not be used as a bargaining chip. I think they really mean the Ireland of Ireland. They don't want it used as a bargaining chip. I think we're, we're counting on the fact that we're not relying on public opinion because public opinion, as you say, in both the UK and in Europe <laughs> doesn't really care about Ireland. Relying on official European Union and official UK caring about us and the UK says they absolutely care about us that's why you're in our top priorities the EU say the same thing do we believe them? no do we believe them? I think more on the EU side because they have to be seen to um, they can't punish a member state for staying in the union Mind you, they've been shown in the past that they'll, you know, they're they're prepared to sacrifice countries, including this one, for the for what's perceived well, like, as the, you know, the greater. Yeah, in fairness, like we can, we, the, we, can, the we, can well. we can we can kind of say like they don't care about us and they like they, they we aren't at the top of the priorities. But Enda Kenny was successful in stitching language specific to Ireland into mm-hmm. Michelle Barney's open, opening opening um, uh, priorities. So. The early signs are good, but what good are early signs when you get down to the final two or three days? Yeah, I suppose the question is how much further can the Irish government take it than it has been taken by Andy Kenny? And I do acknowledge that he, he did have some success at diplomatic level. And But I, I think probably what Leif Radker has been doing is preparing the ground for failure. Mm. We were all a bit shocked, I suppose, at his change in tone, or at least we perceived it as a change in tone. Um, but looking back on it, probably what he was trying to do was make it clear to people that we weren't going to get what we wanted. Mm. Uh, 
I think that's the case, you know, and the thing about the peace process, like, unfortunately, the British are using the peace process as a bargaining chip. Mm -hmm. It's really, really horrifying, but it's happening. And uh, if you look at the British media now, they've belatedly woken up to the fact that, uh, you know, we've got a problem here on our landmass and they're focused very much on this row between Dublin and London, this diplomatic row. But as Fake suggests, it doesn't really matter because Dublin and London aren't going to thrash out this problem. This is going to be solved between London and Brussels. And we are just one, a very small player in a group. And yes, I'm sure they're sympathetic to us, but they're not going to bend over backwards. It also comes down to how difficult we want to be. I know Vincent O'Toole wrote about this last week, that we had a weapon, and we spoke about it in last week's podcast, we had a weapon to use in the European Council if we wanted to, vetoing anything. That's a decision for the government to make. I don't at this stage see us going down that route because I spoke to someone after um, that last week and said yeah it's all well and good to go in and threaten the devil and all but we have to work with these people and we want them to come around to our point of view on specific issues so we will have to weigh up when we want to be difficult if we want to be difficult I don't wouldn't see it happening anytime in the next six seven eight nine twelve ten months it'll be in that final final deal when they're sign off then we can be difficult there's no point in pretending that this is a relationship of equals you know traders around the border they are not equal to their UK counterparts if you like you know mm-hmm. uh, it's just a completely imbalanced I mean, they're even, relationship they're not, they're not even equal to the, the major engines of the Irish economy mm-hmm. you know no. so so the, the question is anyway I suppose moving on I thought there'd be no political news at all this week but there's all kinds of bits about that we'd have to be discussing Game of Thrones spoilers and things like that but you know we mentioned Leo Varadkar who's going around having to wait too long to get tables in Chicago at <laughs> Chicago restaurants I don't know don't know what, what he's at there but I was, I was kind of quite taken Fick, uh, this week by this thing that bubbled up out of nowhere probably because there wasn't a huge amount going on about whether Michael D. Higgins is going to be uh, our president for a a second seven years or not. What's going on there? What's going on is that we're getting to the stage where Michael D. is going to have to tell us if he wants a second term or not. When does he have to tell us that point? He has a right to nominate himself. He has a right to nominate himself and we are due to have a presidential election in October 2018 Mm -hmm. or November 2018. But politically he really has to make his views known by next February or spring because there has to be a process of an election and there has to you have to give the other be fair to the other parties and give them notification if they want to run a candidate. So the question is being asked, does he want a second term? Everybody believes he does want one and nobody really wants to run against him from the established parties, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, Sinn Fein. Because, because it's too expensive. And they'd lose because anyway, he, probably. they believe they would lose they have in a general. They're going to have a general election, an abortion referendum, a local elections, a European elections. They just don't want the hassle of it. But the wild card in our current Iraq disarrangement is that there are so many independents. There are twenty-three independent TDs in the doll alone. Never mind the people in the Shannad. And you know you can be nominated by for the presidential election if you get the signature of twenty of those people. So we have uh, independents of various hue and stripe. Oh, we had Senator Jared Crockwell yeah, across the airwaves yesterday. It was kicked, off, it was kicked yeah. off by Fine McGrath couple of weeks ago who said that I believe for the goodness of democracy there should be a contest and I will sign anybody's or someone's nomination papers if they want to come into the race so that caused a bit of a stir his colleagues his 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 colleagues um, Shane Ross and John Halligan disagreed so they supported Michael D but John Halligan said yeah well if someone wants to run I've signed their papers so if somebody really wants to run they could get the requisite nominations I would think if they want to now they still face the insurmountable 
a challenge of do you have enough money? It is probably insurance it's cost about half a million quid to run a campaign. But isn't isn't the reality though that if if such a thing were to happen and some you know motley crew yeah. of, of independents uh, motivated should be said by they would certainly argue by democratic instincts and that it's not a good idea to have these things mm. as as a, as a fit up and it hasn't been good in the past. Once once they do manage to nominate, if they did manage to nominate somebody, well then it, that the would then open. change the dynamic. Yeah, the, the field is then open. The rest would have to go in because yeah. if there's an election then you would think that other parties will stand somebody. Like. Yeah, no, I mean, Michael D., I think uh, I'd like to see some polling on it, actually. But, I, you know, my sense is that generally people are fond of Michael D. and they think he's performed his duties as he president did say very, very well. Term. But that's the key. How do people react to that? And I am picking up a little bit of that where people are saying, hold on a minute. Yes, he has been very good and he's been an excellent representative. But he did say that he wouldn't do two terms. So how come that's changed and why? And yes, it is very expensive. There's no doubt about that. But there's a lot of people that have been uh, have been thinking about this project for quite a number of years now. And it's, yeah, there's always the f- same old names uh, floating around in the ether. You know, uh, people like Maria Callahan, Emily O'Reilly, the European Ombudsman. Uh, now we have Jared Crockwell, of course. I'm not sure what Sinn Féin... <laughs> I'm not sure what Sinn Féin's thinking, I obviously. Bit of scepticism from my left hand side. The introduction of the late Martin McGuinness into the last yes. race was a complete yes. game changer on many levels. So also, Sinn Féin probably is there sees another. I mean, we, we we know well that there is there is deep cynicism. Uh, and scepticism about the political establishment out there in the country at large, as in many other countries right now. And the prospect of a kind of a fit up, really, with somebody who said they were only going to stand for one term, who's kind of letting it be known, but keeping stum about the fact that he clearly wants a second term. And then it's all done in a backroom deal somewhere and nobody stands against him. You know, you could see how people would have an issue you with could, that. And, um, and, and I saw someone on, on Twitter yesterday raising the point that the president himself has made a big play and a stress huge emphasis on participative democracy throughout his entire political career. And to actually, be fair to him, Fer- I think he was actually, instrumental in helping making yeah. sure that David Norris was, actually, was nominated. Actually, it, it was Fergus Finlay uh, in the Examiner, who is a former Labour advisor. I think he may have been advising, he might have been involved in the background of the Michael D campaign in 2011. He said that he should run, if he wants a second term, he should put himself before the people and seek the Senate because of the importance of participative democracy and he raised a very good point as well which is that you know general elections come and go they can be five years they can be two years can be three years presidential election is seven years and there are people who will not be able like if you were 17 when michael d was elected you won't not you wouldn't be able to vote in presidential election till you're 31 that's a long period of time so having having said all that mary i do have an alternative view again which is that the last one in 2011 was 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 a nasty spiteful uh, unpredictable in a bad way campaign that was it was great fun for the likes of us but it wasn't exactly you know it, 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 you know it wasn't exactly a fantastic exercise in uh, you know in democratic debate and clarity you know yeah my recollection especially the way it ended up with the final debate and the outcome of that yes uh, indeed uh, my recollection of it too is similar that it was particularly nasty um, but I, I don't know if the public saw it that way or if people remember no I mean it's so long you're no, smiling it's, face. It's, it's, it's just like a political spectator sport where let's face it the office is a high office but it's not a powerful one um you're ba- you're basically debating a person's personality and it's reality tv that's yes. how it is these days it's consequence free really mm. 
Yeah. But the other part of it, I suppose, is that, you, I mean, you, and you mentioned it there, Fiek, is that the reason the political parties don't want to get involved is because there's a, there's a fairly full schedule next year. There's the question of when and if the general election will happen, a fairly good chance that it might happen over the course of 2018. There's the, there's the referendum on the Eighth Amendment, which looks likely, most likely to happen in late spring, something of that sort. Uh, well, that's TBC. Mm. Uh, Leave Radker was asked about that in Belfast, actually. Would he take into account how students feel about that? And there's a sense He sort of, of said yes, didn't he? He sort of said yes, and then he sort of said no. He said that uh, he's definitely got a lot of referendums scheduled. Now, actually, this is quite exciting because now, for as long as I've been covering politics, they've been talking about running a referendum on the woman in the home, you know, that clause yep. in the Constitution. So I actually think it might get an airing sometime okay. soon which I'm kind of delighted about. But, but the likelihood um, is that that would be held on a separate occasion from the oh, referendum very much and the so. I mean, you'd, you'd to have to, to be, sanitise it and keep it away well, that's from... That's going to be really interesting, actually, what, if anything, is run alongside the Eighth Amendment referendum, because that's yeah. a very, very delicate one. Um, Their pattern to date has been to be a run a contentious referendum and a non-contentious referendum on the same day. Yeah, you think of uh, the marriage equality referendum and then the lowering the... The, uh, was it lowering the voting age to 16? Am I right? Yes, I think that's I'm right. right about that. Which went down, obviously, yeah. because that's the sophisticated electorate votes for one thing but wants to give the government a so kick. So you have it. It is not politically ideal to have a referendum right bang in the middle of the summer because there are lots of people away, not just students, but lots of other people as well. So you are, in a sense, potentially disenfranchising some people, particularly with our really rotten, uh, you know, postal postal voting system. Just, you know, pre- you know, preventing them from ha- being able well, to exercise their May franchise. Or June, which hmm. I don't really consider the middle of the summer. No, but, sure. Uh, has to get done before the Pope arrives anyway. Interpretation. And then, yeah, towards the end of the year is the other option, obviously, if so it's going to be held in 2018. So you have, this, you have this complicated calendar next year with you know that referendum um, and then the question of an election coming back presumably on the agenda the, the three budgets which were the I think the, 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 the foundation of the yeah, confidence and supply agreement the third that, one is the confidence and supply agreement is basically year. up uh, in October 2018 or whenever that budget passes which can be by that Christmas once you get the finance bill. So technically it needs to be renegotiated. Then renegotiated or continue. you go to the country. That's if we get to the end of it. But I think most CDs and most people around Leinster House don't envisage this government lasting uh, the full length of next year. They think there'll be an election sometime either in spring or in the autumn. And the only problem I see with spring election is the referendum on the Eighth Amendment. Um, because then you're into the whole who pulled the plug question, aren't you? And if, for example, uh, either... Uh, either Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil was seen as, for political advantage or because the moment is right, seen to have precipitated an election, uh, and uh, which meant that the referendum wasn't going to take place. That could have all kinds of negative impacts. Yeah, for yeah I don't think Michael Martin, as long as he's in charge of Fianna Fáil, I don't think he wants that. I think his calculation is that Fianna Fáil voters will reward him and the party for sticking to their agreement and keeping you know, a steady course. And yeah, I don't think anybody wants to be the party that uh, prompts what you might call an abortion election. You know, no. nobody wants that to happen. Although, of course, something but can always go wrong. Correct and events. And, and because, because we have a situation where both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have released the whip that if we were to have an election before we had a referendum, every TD in the country would be asked, what is your position on yeah, this, this and this? They're all very exposed. So perhaps it would be in the interest of both to get mm-hmm. it off the table. And someone in Fine Gael actually kind of put a, a very interesting calculation that they felt that Michal Martin... 
although we don't know what Michal Martin would think, they felt that Michal Martin would like to get the abortion referendum out of the way first for the reason that Fianna Fáil's weakness is in the greater Dublin area and in Dublin where most Liberal votes are and it would not be great for him if he had a large proportion of his CDs campaigning against change. So then if, from the point of view of the large parties, nothing goes wrong and you don't have an election then, do you have one do you have one between Budget Day and Christmas, you know, the, the confidence supply agreement has come to there is a series of votes that have to put through that yeah. budget, you know, which go on for, for a there few is, weeks. There is a kind of view that if you get through the next budget you could go go on a tire another year if you wanted. Yeah, I don't think there's any great demand now for an election. From either of the main parties. If you get I think Fianna Fautis are getting antsy. I think there's a they just they just can't stand this anymore and they a, a number of them want an election. But I think that Mary's right that Michal Martin's instincts are to hold the line as long as he can to be seen to be responsible. Uh, but if you get through 2018, then you could get through 2019. And what about Leif Radker's you know, instincts? I he mean, he is Taoiseach after he can, all. Uh, he, he, he cannot be seen to, Well, he has said he wouldn't pull. He has said that he wouldn't call an election, so he's kind of tied himself to that. Now, the thinking is that you have to have a reason for an election. So what would the reason be? And he, he, some people in Fianna Fáil are of the view that you have a, an election on the third budget that you don't pass it, but you say, this is our vision, this is where we think the money should be spent, and this is where they think the money should be spent, let's have an election on that. Which would seem to be politically plausible, but then again... Of course, the thing is, politicians don't get to decide what elections are fought on, and you know, well, in indeed, advance, they may I'm, they may like to think that. I'm also old enough to remember the 1989 election when Charlie High manufactured, a, uh, you know, a reason because he thought that he was going to get the majority that he'd been that yeah. he hadn't got at the previous election, Theresa and it sure as hell didn't work out. You know, do you think it's it's, it's Michal Martin's last chance? So it's a big decision for him to make, but when he calls it, so he will not call it until he thinks the time is right for Fianna Fáil. And of course then if it goes into 2019 you're into the locals and the Europeans. Yeah, There's always very, something. Yeah, it, of course. It'd be very out of character for Michal Martin to you know, make any sudden moves if you like. I think we'd be very surprised yeah, I, at I that. Think, I think he's ultra cautious. I think the only thing that will, could change that is the pressure from below yeah. in his party that we're sick of this, we have to go. Right. Marianne Fick, thanks very much for coming in today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Remember, you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcast or you can subscribe via iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider may be. And if you're already a subscriber, we're always very grateful if you take a moment to share or to recommend the podcast to other potential listeners. Helps us to get it out to a broader audience. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can email me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.